things away. The game I enjoyed playing as a child was hide and seek. I'm, I'm guessing that maybe all of us have played that game when we're little kids. You know, it's a, it's a game I played with my siblings and my cousins at home. It's a game I played at school with my friends. And, you know, it's a, you know, it's a game you can play inside a house. You can play it out in the yard, and there's yelling and screaming and laughing and, you know, running and, and all that kind of stuff that goes with that game. And, and if you remember, one of the high points, or probably the high point of the game, is when the designated seeker finished counting and cried out, ready or not, here I come, you know, that, that kind of a deal. But I, I, you know, just think about it, you know, remind, think back to how it was, you know, if you were the hider, you were one of the hiders, you tried to find a, a creative place to hide, but you didn't want to be too creative because you wanted to be, you know, in the end you really wanted to be found because hide and seek's no fun if nobody finds you and and if you're the, if you're the seeker, you're, you know, you, you look everywhere. You, if you're doing it in the house, you look in closets, you look behind doors. I mean, you know, you, whatever. And if you're out in the yard, you look, looking behind trees and what, you know, all the different things that are, somebody could hide behind. But I got to tell you that there is no better place, in my opinion, to play hide and, hide and seek than the farm. Okay? If anybody... Grew up on a farm, you might be able to understand you got a lot of places to hide in a farm. And, and, and one of the things that we used to do is we used to kind of kick it up a level. Uh, uh, my brother that was the closest to me in age, so that we did some of these things together. And when we got a little bit older, you know, we weren't playing hide and seek anymore, that the, the kid kind of away, but we created our own version of it on the second floor of our barn. And, and, uh, and, and we had a pretty good sized barn. And on one end of the barn, it would be all the hay bales. And, and then on, on the other side of the barn, just in case you don't, you know, nobody, if you don't know what a bale is, that's kind of what a bale looks like, okay? And then, then on the other side of the barn, the other half of the barn would be straw bales. They were, the, they were the bales that you made out of what was left over after combining, the, the you know, the yellow stuff. Uh, and uh, so... My dad, which I can't believe he actually let us do this, would let my brother and I, once all the bells were there, they almost went like floor to ceiling, so there were a lot of bells, half the barn, we would, we would create tunnels all over the place. And we would just dig down in these things, we had tunnels that, you know, you could get in from this part of the, over here, or this part over here, and you'd... And, and then, at different points, and I'm, I'm telling you, there were a lot of tunnels, okay? And at different points, we would create, like, rooms. So you could be going along, and suddenly you would drop down, and you'd be in a room. And some rooms were smaller than, than others, and that, but we always had, like, one, one main room, room when, when we did this. And one of the things, and we couldn't wait. I, me- I can still remember the first time our cousins came from the city. And we took them into this. Okay, and we had flashlights, just my brother and I had flashlights, and we, we got them way into this thing, I mean, you're, you know, they've been crawling for a while, and then we turned the flashlights off, and then we just took off, you know, and, and they, they had no idea where they were, and they, they had to try to find us, we, and, and so second year round, they, kind of, they had the thing figured out, but 
you always had somebody who'd done it for the first time, so it was a lot of fun to play hide and seek that way. So as I, as I thought about hide and seek, I thought about this. You know, it, it struck me that in some ways we can still play this game as adults. But the rules that we have for playing it are much more sophisticated and, 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 and much more complex. As, as, as we grow older, our, our hiding game takes on a, on a different character. They tend to be motivated by the realization that who we, who we want others to think we are is oftentimes disconnected from who we really are deep down inside. Instead of hiding under beds or in closets, we hide behind these carefully crafted images of ourselves that we project out to everybody else. And, and when we do this, the, the, the worst thing that could happen is, is for someone to say to us, ready or not, here I come, and our, our guard is down, and suddenly we're discovered for doing something that we really didn't want anybody else to know that we did. As finite and flawed human beings, it's very, it's very easy to want to hide our struggle with sin. And we'll expend all kinds of energy hiding what we know doesn't support the image that we keep trying to project to other people. And, and, and the reason we do this is we, we want to avoid experiencing shame, that, that painful feeling of having been exposed about having something revealed about us that really we don't want anybody else to know. Anybody been there? Huh? Shame was never more on display than the third chapter of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. Chapter 3 is really quite a contrast to chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, there's, there's a complete lack of shame. Everything is... As God created it, designed it to be, everything was perfect. Nothing was broken or defiled. And the very last verse of that chapter, that second chapter, we see the high point of the perfection that's, that's described, this one-sentence description of Adam and Eve, where, where we read this, the, the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame, no shame. This is at the very heart of God's design. What is and what ought to be are, are the same. They're, they're one, and so there's no reason for shame. But this lack of shame was short-lived, wasn't it? We know the rest of the story. In, in verse 7 of, of chapter 3, uh, uh, before, really, before the taste of the fruit is out of their mouth, Adam and Eve are described this way. So then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. And so they, they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid 
because I was naked, and so I, so I hid. <laughs> as ridiculous as it was, Adam and Eve scrambled to hide from the God who made them. And all humanity has been scrambling to hide ever since. As Old Testament scholar Richard Averbeck uh, writes, he said, since that day, scrambling has been a most natural disposition for all of us. It affects every part of our life, right down to the very core of who we are and out into our relationships. We we scramble to hide. We, We scramble to avoid the shame we deserve. And we don't want to be exposed. See, I think that Adam wasn't all that concerned about God seeing his flesh uncovered. I think that he did care that God would see his sin, his filth, and his brokenness uncovered. I think Adam did care that his rebellion, his fallenness would be laid bare before God, and and he was filled with shame, so he hid. And, and all humanity has been corrupted and bent and hiding ever since. Perhaps you've come here today as someone who's been hiding. Hiding your shame from God and from others. There's something in your life that you know isn't right. I mean, you know, the, you really know that it's not right. And... And you'd never want anybody else to know that you're doing that, that that's a part of your life. And, you know, so you hide it. Yeah, you don't want it. You want to change it. You want to stop doing what it is that you're doing. And and really, you're you're coming here today and you're saying, man, I'm I'm just desperate for help. And and I am just so grateful to be able to stand in front of you this morning and, and say that, The verses that were read by Lindsay a few minutes ago, they helps for you in those verses. It's true. This this morning we come to what is, at the same time, one of the most horrifying chapters in in the Bible. And and yet, really, it 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 is the most glorious passage, and perhaps in all of the Scripture. It's in these nine verses that we see a we see a, a graphic graphic portrayal of the fact that Jesus took your shame and, and my shame, he, he took it all on himself so that you and I could be free from our shame. And because this is true, you and I can we can have absolute confidence that there's no shame in Christ. No shame, no shame whatsoever. After Easter, we're going we're gonna to do a, a series in the book of Colossians, and, and we're going we're gonna to give the title Equations to this series. And So what I think I've got for you this morning is probably one of the most amazing equations. And it goes like this, you plus Jesus equals no shame. Yeah, wonderful. You plus Jesus. You just put your name in there for you. You know, I could say Steve plus Jesus. No shame. No shame. So what I'd what I'd like to do this morning is just simply talk through these verses that were read and and help each one of us see the why it's true. How was that Jesus took 
your shame and my shame on himself so that you and I could be free from shame the, the rest of our life. And the first thing we see is that Jesus was tortured by the soldiers. Read each one of the Gospels and you find that they took, these men took every opportunity they had to torture the man they're about to kill. Beginning the night that he was arrested, even, even before his trial began, Luke writes this in the 22nd chapter of his Gospel. He, he said the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. Mocking, beating. They blindfolded him and and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. That's torture. Getting beat over and over again, and, and mocked and insulted. And, and then Jesus is put on trial before Pilate. And, 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 and even though Pilate could not find one legitimate reason to crucify Jesus Christ, he, he begins to yield to the pressure of the crowd. And, and if you read each one of the gospel accounts, you find out that Pilate, because of his lack of courage, tried to wiggle his way out of this. And, and, and one of his first wiggles, one of his first maneuver, maneuvers was, was to try to hand Jesus off to, off to Herod. But all Herod does is entertain himself. Luke writes... Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. And dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. Right here, everybody. Think of the, think of the humiliation, the, the shame for Jesus Christ to be shuffled back and forth and back and forth and treated like he was really nothing. And again... Pilate struggles between what he knows is right and the pressure of the crowd, and he, he takes another step toward the crowd. And so John describes this for us in the first three verses of chapter 19. He said, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. He had him beaten. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. In these verses, we have all the trappings of a royal coronation. And John doesn't spare any words as he describes the kind of shame and disgrace that's being heaped on Jesus. And in this elaborate charade that's described here, there's a, there's a crown of thorns and there's a purple robe and they're bowing down and they're worshiping Jesus, but it's all a joke to the soldiers. They're violent toward Jesus. They beat him with whips. They strike him over and over. And they, they spit on him. They spit in his face. And Jesus took that shame. He deserved none of it, but he took it. And yet in the midst of the horror of this text, there's this, there's this incredible glory because the irony is he's, he's exactly who they're saying he is, only, only more. He's not only the king of the Jews, he's the king of the universe. And this king, this king of the universe, took our shame so that you and I could be free of shame. Read the verses that follow, and 
Again, you see Pilate's effort to not do what he knows is wrong, but in the end, he, he gives into the crowd and, and hands Jesus over to be crucified. Which brings us to today's text in verse 16. John writes, Finally, Pilate handed him over to them, to the soldiers, to be crucified. And so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. And carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And here they crucified him. John doesn't use many words, does he, to describe the crucifixion. Just three words. They crucified him. In fact, if you read the other Gospels, you'll find that it, the same was true for Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke. They, they all used just three words to describe the, the death of Christ on the cross. They, just all, they all simply said they, they crucified him. Have you ever wondered why? Now, why just three words? See, I think it's because there was no reason to describe it. That everyone who, who was the first to read what John wrote and the other Gospels wrote, they, they knew all about crucifixion. They didn't, they didn't need to have the gory details. They knew that death by crucifixion is the extreme of human wretchedness. Even the Romans were appalled by crucifixion. They, they reserved it only for the worst of the worst. It's, it was ghastly. It was excruciating. It was prolonged. It, it was degrading. But <laughs> know this, everyone, okay? Our Lord's physical suffering didn't come close to the agony that he experienced as he, as he took our sin, our shame on himself and bore the judgment of God. I mean, that's, that's why from the cross he cried out, my God, my God, why, why are you forsaking me? In the words of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, he was pierced. For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and every one of us has turned to his own way, and, and the Lord has laid on him, laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was completely exposed on the cross. That's the thing that got me about this passage is you read about the soldiers gambling for his undergarments. They already had everything else that he wore and, and then it came down to his undergarments and, and what that means is that, that he was stripped naked when he hung on that cross. It's horrifying. It's horrifying because our sin in the sight of a holy God is horrifying and and must be paid for. You see, all of our sin was piled on Jesus, and, and Jesus Christ was exposed on the cross for the whole universe to see. Think about your own life, those things that you've hidden in the past, or maybe you're hiding right now. What do you think it would be like if I pointed to one of you this morning and I had you walk up here and somehow I knew all of those sins and I had all of those sins written on our PowerPoint this morning for everybody to see. How would you feel? 
Pretty shamed, right? Pretty awful. See, Jesus took every bit of that on himself. All of your shame, all of your sin, all of my shame, all of my sin. He took all of that so that you and I could be freed of, of that ever happening. And in doing that, he, 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 he turned the horrifying cross into a symbol of glory, so much so that, that, that it, it was a horror for everyone who saw it. What, what was that back then is, is now worn as a symbol of, of hope around our neck. Now that's why, you know, Greg, my son, wore this. My favorite picture of our son is him wearing this cross, Yeah. Because of what it means. It's, it's a symbol of hope. I don't know if you realize it, but Christians have been mocked for a savior on a cross for centuries. In fact, there's a piece of graffiti, and that's right up there that you're looking at. On the left side, that's the original, what was found on, a, on the cave. And then uh, an artist did a, a drawing of it so that we could see it, and it's a what it is, it's a, it's a picture of, a, of, 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 of God with a donkey head being crucified. And the person standing next to him is a man by the name of Alexa Menace. And his hands are raised in worship. And, and the words say, Alexa Menace worships his God. <laughs> See, it's all a mockery. Here we have the earliest artwork of Jesus Christ on a cross, and it's a crude joke. Not, not only does it picture the shame of a God crucified, it pictures the shame of someone who would worship a God who's crucified. And yet you and I know that <laughs> what looks like foolishness is the power and the wisdom of God. For this act, that Christ's death on a cross is is the most important act that a king could ever accomplish. You see, the truth is Jesus Christ reigns from the cross. This is his moment of, of greatest glory, his moment of greatest triumph, of greatest strength and power. Last year, um, first weekend in December, Becky and I drove up to Minneapolis to attend a uh, uh, Choral concert that my uh, my niece Tammy. Some of you know Tammy uh, died last year too, and and uh, so Mike had invited us along with his family to come and listen to him sing. And it was a, it was just a, it's an amazing choir, just very well known in the Minneapolis area and. Beautiful music. I mean, it's just a great night of worship. And they, what they do is that at, at that time of year, around Christmas, they'll go, from, they'll go to different churches in the city. And it's a, it's a, they have to go to large churches because it's sold out and it's filled. And, and so the one we went to was in Wyzetta and was at a Catholic church. Huge building. Absolutely beautiful. And at the very front, like with all Catholic churches, there it was a crucifix, Christ on the cross at, at the very front, at the very front, you know? And I come in and I sit down and I, and I, look, at that, I look at that crucifix of Christ and, 
and I, I'd get it to everybody. I was just, I was just spellbinding for me. I couldn't take my eyes off it because it was different from anyone I'd ever seen before. Instead of Christ hanging with his head down like this, he's like this. His hands are stretched on the cross, the horizontal beam. You can still see the nails, but he's, he's stretched out and his eyes are lifted up like he's looking up into heaven. And I tell you, what, it, was, it was just simply this amazing picture of the triumph of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's like he's ready to take off and go back to his father. You see, it's through this, uh, what some thought was an un, un, heroic act that Jesus Christ became the greatest hero. Our hero, because he died to deliver us from sin and shame. It's, it's why the Apostle Paul wrote these words in, in the first chapter of the book of Romans where he said, and I could just feel his passion as he wrote it. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So he's tortured. He's crucified. And then he's mocked again. Read the Gospels and you discover that on the cross, Jesus is taunted again and again. People staring at him and, and gloating and laughing as he's dying the most agonizing of deaths. And, and the reoccurring theme that everybody is saying over and over again is, save yourself. John only had one verse. Chapter 19, verse 18, he, he wrote this. Here they crucified him and and with him two others, one on each side and, and Jesus in the middle. You see, I'm so glad that, that Mark in his gospel adds more insight to what John wrote. Here, here's what Mark wrote. They said they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and, and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So... You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. The soldiers, the religious leaders, those passing by, and even the criminals on the cross, they're all doing the same thing. They're goading Jesus. They're goading him to prove he's God. They're taunting him to perform some supernatural act of power and come down from the cross. You know why they're doing this? They're doing it because they had no understanding of the supernatural act of power he was accomplishing on the cross. You see, the truth is, if, if Jesus Christ would have come down from the cross and saved himself, we would have all been doomed. It's precisely by giving himself that he saved us. By taking our shame on himself, he freed us from shame. So, given the good news, given the truth of the gospel, what, what does this mean for us? What should we do? What should we do? 
Well, I'd say the first thing we should do is grab on to God's grace. Grab on, grab on to the amazing truth that, that, that Jesus Christ came to this earth to free us from shame. Darren Patrick, who is a pastor in St. Louis Journey Church, wrote these words. He, and I love it. It just, it just busted me, everybody. He said, Satan's main temptation is to convince us that we're half the sinner than we actually are. And that we have a half of Christ's acceptance as we actually do. You hear that? Like, it's like he's, he, he, he gets us to think that we're half as bad as we really are, and, but he also gets us to think that we're too bad for God to forgive us. See, I, I'm, I'm busted with that. Because I think far too often the way I live my life, I'm, I'm in no way coming to terms with the depth of my sin before a holy God. And, and, I, and, in, and in the same way, I'm not coming to terms with the, with the amazing aspect of God's grace for me, for Steve Maltemeyer. So how about you? Yeah. Have, have you come to terms with the depth, and I mean the the real depth of your sin before a holy God? And have you come to terms with the fact that God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you? See, what, what, I'm, what I'm asking you today is, have, have you stopped hiding from the one who seeks you? Have you given Jesus Christ your shame? You see, this morning you can end the hiding, you can end the shame, and you can, you can do it by telling Jesus Christ your shame, really just confessing it to him and and then putting all your trust in what he did for you on the cross. The second thing I'd say is this, and that is we should surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord. You know, you, you, don't you wonder why? Why was it that the soldiers and the religious leaders and everybody walking by the cross and, and even the, the two men on either side of him who were, who were being crucified him, themselves, these criminals, you... You wonder, you know, why was it? Why did everybody react so strongly to, to what Jesus Christ said about himself? Why were they so angry about it? Tell you what, you read the Gospels and, and you, you come to understand that, I mean, that's the only way you can deal with the claims of Jesus Christ. I mean, the claims of Jesus Christ demand a white-hot response from us. Either we, we hate him, we just think he's the worst of the worst because, you know, he's some kind of a nutcase or, or liar, or, or we're white-hot in our love for him and we bow down to him. You see, in that sense, the mockers got something right. In the book of Revelation, John records God's words to a church that was lukewarm. And I think what could be written to a church could be written to any one of us personally. God said, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I, I wish you were either one or the other. So, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. See, everybody, Jesus is not a lukewarm God. 
This call to you and me is not something simply to be added on to our lives to help us feel better or, you know, or to simply cope with life. He, it, it's his call to each one of us is to surrender to him as Lord. You know, John doesn't tell us, but the other Gospels do, that that horizontal beam of the cross that Jesus Christ was supposed to carry, he, he, he couldn't carry it. He had been beaten up so much that a man was picked out of the crowd by the name of Simon. We know nothing about this man except he was from Cyrene, which is present-day Libya. We know nothing about him except we do know this. Simon did the greatest thing any person could ever do. He carried the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you read the gospel accounts, you, you find out that he followed Jesus. He followed Jesus, carrying that cross, he, you know, all the way to the place where Jesus Christ would be crucified. See, everybody, that's what it means to surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord. In his own words, Jesus Christ said, said this in the 8th chapter of Mark's gospel. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It means every single day we're willing to die to ourselves. It's not about me, but it's about my Lord Jesus Christ. Every single day we're willing to live that way. And, and every single day we're willing to follow Jesus Christ where he leads us. The third thing. To be honest about your sin. Truth is, we're all broken. Right? I mean, we blow it over and over again. I mean, how many times? And, and really, the best thing we can do for ourselves and for one another is, is to be real about our brokenness, our sin. I'm convinced that James gave us one of the best things we can do for our own spiritual growth and for our own spiritual health. It's just one sentence, one sentence thing he said to do. He said, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Boy, it's hard to do that, isn't it? It's so humbling to tell somebody else your sin. I, I, you know, I grew up on a farm and uh, when you work on a farm and you work with machinery, especially old machinery, man, you can really get mad. Okay? And I got to tell you, back in my high school days, I had a real problem with profanity. I, I remember one time out plowing and this little three-bottom plow and and. Um, some of you might understand this, that it, it had a hydraulic lift, and so you had these hoses that you would connect from the plow into the, into the tractor, and, and, uh, and that you push a lever, and that would raise and lower the plow. And, and I don't know what happened. I hit a rock or something else, and the plow came unhooked from the tractor, and the hoses came off, and so the thing you got to do then is you got to hook it up again. But there's this pressure that builds up. And so, forgetting about that, I'm trying to jam the hose from the plow into the one in the tractor, and it just shot oil all over me. And I still remember this. 
Because I was just fighting to get over this profanity thing. I was wanting to get my spiritual life together in every way. And I just remember running back and forth and mad. I mean, I was just, I was just swearing a storm. And not just one word. All of them. Okay? I was so ashamed. And I finally calmed down and got everything together and got on that tractor and it's like, what are you doing? Well, you know what? Two or three years ago, it started showing up again. And I don't know why. I don't know what set it off. I don't know what triggered it in me. But I started hearing myself swearing again. Something would tick me off. And many times it wasn't even a big thing. It was a little thing, you know. And, and I would just get mad. And, and, and all those words started coming out of my mouth. It's like, what's going on? And I thought, man, I'm not going to, this is not going to, this is not, this cannot continue. So I went into Jeff Dart's office one day. Bob Blue is mine. <laughs> I said, Jeff, here's what's going on in my life right now. And I just, I confessed it to him. I told it to him. And I said, I said two things. Jeff, you got to pray for me. Man, this is terrible. And Jeff, I, I want to I be accountable to you. And so this is what I'm going to do, all right? Next time I do this, I'm going to... I'm going to come into your office, first chance I have, and I'm going to give you, and I brought one with me just to show him I'm, I'm going to, I was going to keep it. I'm going to get, I'll give you this $100 bill. Well, sure enough, one long after that, and I lost it. And you know what I did? I walked into Jeff's office, and I said, I, and boy, it was hard. I mean, Hundred dollars. <laughs> like, yeah. So let me ask you. Do you have somebody like that? See, we all need a safe place. Jeff was that safe place for me. And really, that's what the church is meant to be. We're, we're meant to be a place where sinners find grace, where, where shame is left at the foot of the cross, and, and we don't have to hide, you know? We don't, we don't have to pretend to be something we're not. So who knows you beside yourself? Oh, I just... You know, do you have a Christian brother or sister with whom you can reveal who you really are and what you're struggling with right now and where you can find grace and truth? That's one reason why I'm convinced it's so vital to be part of a, of a small group of believers where there's just a huge amount of grace and you can be real. Because, boy, we've got to be real. Finally, one more. How do we... How do we live a life that's free of shame? How do we have victory? Well, I think we do it by fixing our eyes on Jesus. I, I, I love the way the writer of Hebrews said this in the first three verses of chapter 12. I, I memorized these verses several years ago, and I'm, I just love it. He said, 
He said, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance, a race marked out for us. Let, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its, what? Shame. Shame sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yeah. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Okay? Oh, God, I'm, I'm so overwhelmed with gratitude to you that you love me so much, you loved each one of us so much that you sent your son Jesus Christ to this earth to take our sin and our shame on himself so that we never have to face it again or have it face us. We praise you. Amen.